Hello, and welcome to EIP Talks, a podcast focusing on patent news, trends, and insights. I am Matthew Blaisby, European and UK patent attorney and partner here at EIP. And I'm delighted to be joined by Christoph Hune, a German litigator and partner here at EIP. Now, we all know that the Industry Patent and Unified Patents Court, the EPC, is big news in the patents world. There are many news reports explaining the new laws, but ultimately businesses need to know how the EPC affects them. What are the pros and cons, the value add and the risks, and how to balance them? In other words, what is the practical recommendation for their business? The EPC will need a collaborative approach between litigators and prosecutors. This podcast is a fly-on-the-wall view of a typical conversation between a European patent prosecutor, that's me, Matthew, and a litigator, Christoph. We weigh up the options based on the client's needs, the facts, and decide whether or not to recommend the UPC to the client. Note that this is a fictitious conversation for the purpose of the podcast, to demonstrate the various strategic considerations. It is set as happening during the sunrise period, before the UPC goes live, and as part of our client deciding whether or not to opt their European patent out of the UPC. The nine-month opposition period at the European Patent Office has passed already. Of course, every business's circumstances and patent portfolios will be different, so this podcast is not legal advice, but hopes to demonstrate the practical and strategic considerations necessary in deciding what value the UPC can offer. So here goes. Hey, hi, Christoph. How are you? Have you got some time to discuss a client matter, please? I'm really struggling to figure through all the options, and I'd be grateful for your help. Hi, Matthew. Good to hear from you. Sure. Go ahead. Cool. Thanks. Um, no, I've just got off the phone with a client, and they're pretty hacked off with their main competitor in Europe. They want to take action, sue them, and basically get their damages as, as, as significantly as possible. Um, We've identified several infringing actions in various states covered by the European patent, and I said we'd look into the options for pursuing them. Okay, yeah, that sounds interesting. I mean, looking at this competitor, is the head office uh, or manufacturing taking place in Europe? Uh, it's in Portugal, their head office, so not, not your run-of-the-mill country, um, but we're going to have to try and take some action there, I think, to, to, to make an impact. Yeah, and besides Portugal, are any other countries also affected by this uh, potential defendant? Uh, we've got France, UK, Netherlands, and Germany, at least. I, I did think that one option is we start actions for infringement in each of the national courts for those countries, but that's going to be expensive. And Portugal, well, I, to hit them at source, I just I don't know anything about Portugal. Um I guess we'll be dealing with a court we've got less experience of. And, and I just don't know how a judge will deal with a case when the competitor is a major business in their home country. It's, it's just too much of an unknown for me. So given that, I was wondering about this new unified patent court, the UPC. But I, again, that's very unknown to me. Um, and I guess we'd be taking quite a risk by using it, especially if so early in its infancy. What do you think? Ah, the UPC, that's definitely on our mind these days. Um, but before being able to take any reasonable decision here, um, do you have some further information? I mean, the, the first question is, of course, what, what kind of technology are we talking about here? So it's exercise bikes 
the smart kind, you connect to the internet and you can you know, race with all sorts of other people around the world. Our clients, the leading manufacturer of these bikes, they sell significant volumes in many of the states covered, covered by their European patent. And that's why they validated their European patent so widely. So very um, with a lot of foresight, they did even validate in Portugal because they were aware of this competitor at the time. Ah, that's definitely interesting to have a European patent that's validated in several countries. Yeah, and, and definitely to, to look at. Um, when we look at the individual countries where we have a validation, I mean, is, is the infringement significant? Is there an economic impact? We've done some research. Uh, we've looked through the business accounts for the competitor and, yeah, their revenues are significantly um, it's significant enough. They're certainly large enough to cut into our clients' revenue. And, you know, even though our clients are a relatively small business they're, and, and are nervous of escalating to litigation, they have to take some action because otherwise their sales are going to continue to be affected and longer term, their business prospects will just be eroded. Got it. Okay, so let's let's look at the options. I mean, the, the first option on the table is, of course, that we go directly to, to Portugal and, uh, and sue there. I have to say, however, that having been in the business for about 15 years, I've never really come across much litigation in Portugal and don't have any insight as to what the judges are like and uh, what a case there would, would really look like. Um, so there's definitely an element of uncertainty here, but um, on the other hand, we can't, of course, exclude Portugal. So when we look at the UPC that you already mentioned, um, we could bring an action that would also cover Portugal, but would take place in a different state. Um, we don't have to start the action just where the defendant is domiciled. We could also go to a country where infringement or um, likely infringement will take place. Have you looked at that at all? We have a little. Uh, we've got evidence already, um, including some test purchases in Germany, France, the Netherlands, and the UK. Um, that was of one model of the exercise bike that sold. And the same models available on their website for international shipping throughout Europe. So whilst we haven't looked at all the other countries yet, our client believes they must exist because, oh, hang on, they, they read out three things on the phone. Um, they are available to buy online and easily shipped. The competitor's product is undercutting our client's product price. So given the choice, you'd probably buy the cheaper one as a purchaser. And it's something that's widely desirable at the moment. The client reported quite an uptick during and after the COVID lockdowns when everyone realized they'd not done as much exercise as they, as they probably felt they should have done. So they're pretty comfortable that when we dig into this deeper, we'll find good evidence of the other countries' infringement as well. Okay, so when we look at all these countries, I think the UPC could in fact be a sensible option in this case here. Um, let's have a brief look at the patent at issue. Have, have you done any claim charting or looked if we have a decent infringement read? You know, this bit's actually quite quite easy. Yes, we've, we've had a look at the granted European patent. Uh, we've, we've prepared some claim charts mapping the claims onto the product and we're comfortable we've got a strong read onto the infringing product. So I've got no worries there. Okay. And then, of course, the big topic before the UPC is always the risk of the central invalidation for the um, member states, sort of like, the, as you know, the opposition before the EPO. So um, does the client really have a fallback position here um, in terms of this patent if things uh, would not work out his way in terms of validity before the UPC? Yeah, good question. 
Uh, we've got a pending European divisional application. Uh, we filed it with a broad claim scope just to keep our options open. So, you know, that already is a backup. We were mindful that there might be litigation further down the line of the now granted patent. So keeping the parallel pending divisional was was important to have. Um, and I guess I guess there's no reason why when that divisional reaches grant, we can't validate in the relevant countries then just opted out from the UPC, even just for the short term. That's I guess that's a hedge. We can hedge our bets so that even if we run into difficulties at the UPC, say, as, as you say, from a, a central revocation or invalidity action, we've still got the backup option of the divisional and taking action at the national courts in the classical way. Mind you, saying that, we've still got Portugal, haven't we? And I guess that's, that's an unknown. We, we just don't know you know, how predictable that will be in terms of outcomes. So we've got to weigh that up. Um, and I guess also we've we've got another hedge, haven't we? We've got, thanks to Brexit, the UK's out of the UPC. Brexit, so, yeah. Yeah, well. I've heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, moving on. Uh, um, the UK is a major market to our clients. Uh, they're a UK business. So, you know, they want to do something in the UK too. So even if the UPC action runs into difficulties you know we we've still got the um the option of applying pressure in the uk and, and our uk litigators can do something about that ah yeah that that sounds sensible so we do have some fallback positions that's certainly helpful so if we were to go the route and use the upc i would of course be inclined to use germany as a venue to start an action one of the key reasons for me would be i mean the system is new nobody really knows exactly how certain details will play out. What I am sure of, however, is that the judges that will sit in these um, chambers in the beginning are experienced and uh, will have had handled several patent cases in the past before. So that's certainly um, an upside, the, the experience of, of the judges that we can expect. If infringement can be demonstrated for Germany, I understand that's the case because the product is offered on the internet. We could actually do some forum shopping in Germany where we have for local divisions and can decide which one we would want to choose. In terms of language, obviously the first language before the German uh, local chamber would be the German language, but the parties and also the court can agree on the language of the patent, which I understand is English. Also, but this is not yet decided, there may be some uh, possibility to also use English as a second language before the German um, chambers, but that is still um, in the process of lawmaking. A big upside, if, if we were to use the UPC, would definitely be that things would move quick in about one year's time. Particularly um, in the beginning when the system will go live, there's not much uh, backlog. So the judges have a relatively free docket. And of course, we would cover a lot of territory and could also collect damages um, for a whole territory here. Gosh, that... That time frame's really, really quick. I mean, that's appealing just on its own. Um, you know, Christoph, what I I know less about is I know there's some quirks of local, you know, national German litigation, which which can be used by a patent proprietor to apply pressure to the infringer. Um, bifurcation is the one that springs to mind where, well, you'll know better than me, but the assessment of infringement is done separately from that of validity. Uh, and I think that sometimes leads to an early injunction on the infringing activities before any validity decision is made. If we went down the UPC route instead, 
what would we be losing um, compared with those benefits in, you know, using the, the national German route? Um, I, you know, I guess we have to weigh that up carefully. Sure, we should look at that. I mean, one of the big advantages, of course, of German litigation is that it's uh, it's quick. <laughs> I think that that is something that we would have here as well. The other point that is always mentioned with regard to German patent litigation is uh, bifurcation. I think actually, if we were to take this case forward, we would see less bifurcation. First of all, we the opposition period before the European Patent Office has already lapsed. So um, if we call on the UPC, it does not have to consider the... Um, pending opposition because there is just none. Um, so we would start off an action and would have to expect that uh, a defendant would raise a counterclaim for revocation. And in such a scenario, um, several things can happen. Uh, then this, uh, to a certain degree, also depends on the technology at issue. If the technology is uh, rather straightforward, the judges, I think, would be inclined to, to uh, hear both actions, so the infringement and the uh, counterclaim for revocation, and decide about them. Um, if the technology were a bit too complex, the first thing they could do was allocate a technical judge from the pool to their chamber to assist in terms of any technical support that's required. And if the case was really complex, it could be deferred either in part or in whole to the central division, where we also have um, technically trained judges. Um, but I think uh, right now um, the technology could be very straightforward so that um, we may have to expect that the judges would take a decision um, also on the uh, counterclaim for revocation. So in some bifurcation, I don't think is going to be a big option here in the present case, but the time uh, factor is definitely one that's positive here. Got it. Thank you. That's interesting, isn't it? So bifurcation may happen, but here it seems unlikely. In some ways, that makes the decision easier here, doesn't it? Good. Ah, God, there's so much to think about. Is there anything else we haven't yet covered which we need to be thinking about? Yeah, I think that this goes to, to one point. I just mentioned that the proceedings will be rather quick in the beginning as there's not much caseload before the judges. And we, we may have to expect that we have um, also the counterclaim for revocation in one proceeding. So, of course, at first, the UPC proceedings are a bit like the German proceedings, maybe unlike the ones that you know from the UK. We have to provide a very front-loaded complaint where we already provide all the evidence that we wish to rely upon for the case. And if we were to um, rely on any expert evidence in this present case, um, it would make sense to already find an expert before and get a witness statement from this expert. In terms of this expert evidence that's now available, um, this is a bit more as you have it in the UK where the expert is actually impartial um, to the party and has to be neutral um, to assist the court. So, of course, we would need to find a, a suitable witness for the uh, present case. So that's certainly some homework that you should do before you start a case. Look at the evidence, look at what we may need. If we need a witness, an expert witness, find this person, get this witness report um, already drafted by him. The other part is, of course, because it's moving quick, the um, validity side of things. And I think it makes perfect sense before we start any action also before, because the patent has not had any opposition, um, that we do a health check um, before we get going. And maybe looking at the technology with which you're, of course, most familiar, do you see any issues in the present case? Yeah, we've given that some thought already to kick the tires. Um, prior art-wise, we haven't come across anything as yet which we think might be a problem. Um, but one thing that we did give some thought to is that we don't yet know how what the UPC case law book is going to look like. 
no one's written any case law for the EPC yet. So, you know, will will they follow the EPO law and case law, for example, on inventive step, or or will they deviate a little bit from that? Um, but the way we resolved it here was, you know, for inventions which are closer to the line of patentable subject matter, uh, like certain types of software, that could be a worry. It might be that the EPO know had found there was an inventive step but the UPC might see it slightly differently but here I, I can't really see that being a risk you know the, the invention's mechanical it relates to how the resistance is applied to the pedals of the bike when you're exercising and and being of that nature I I struggle to see why the UPC might differ from the EPO and inventive step but I guess we can't rule it out for 100% so no I think we're okay there um is there anything else we need to think about on timings? Uh, well, that's, um, I mean, right now we're in the sunrise period, so the system is going to go live and uh, clients and uh, are deciding what to do with their patents if they opt these out or opt these in. On the other hand, you have the um, infringers of the patents or the potential defendants of the future who are also very closely looking at the patents and may make strategic use of um, filing a central revocation action. And that is maybe something that... Um, could be expected also in the present case that the defendant, as our patent here is not opted out, would try to lock us into the system. But that, of course, if we recommend the uh, UPC, which I think we're going to do um, in this case, um, is not to our detriment because we're minded to use the system um, anyway. There could be some interesting questions if um, a revocation action were started. Before we start the uh, infringement action, that revocation action would then go to the central division but we could start an infringement action also before a local and a or a regional division if we can establish infringement there. So actually, this this could force bifurcation. But in the present case, I, I don't know too much about your competitor, and I don't know just how how litigious they are if they're minded to attack any patent right now, or rather sit on the fence. Because obviously, if you attack a patent, it sort of stands in your way, and you you put a target on your head and say, oh, I <laughs> there may be an infringement issue here. So uh, maybe they will just stay quiet. That's what I would expect here. Yeah, okay, okay, thanks. I mean, bottom line, our client needs to put a stop to these infringements. And, and to quote the common phrase with the UPC, with the most bang for the buck, um, we've got to put the most pressure on the competitor for that. So, you know, if, if we can manage the risks with the UPC and, and the client is willing to accept the risk of the central revocation, you know, the risk they might lose their patent in one, one go, I think this is in the best interest of the client. We haven't talked about appeal. I guess that's a longer term consideration, but that's another unknown. I, I feel that we need to sort of maybe look at that a bit later on once we first see whether or not the clients think the UPC makes sense. Sure. I mean, one thing clients are always interested in are, are costs for any actions. And I mean, the present fact pattern gives rise to potential infringement litigation, as I understand it, in the UK. Uh, not in the UK, sorry, in France, the Netherlands, Germany, Portugal, maybe even other countries. So we're looking at an action um, before one court that could, in theory, then cover several countries in the end, the judgment. So let's have a quick look at the costs, well, what it would cost before the UPC. So first of all, as the plaintiff, when you file a complaint, um, you have to pay the court fees. And uh, the court fees here before the UPC consist of two elements. Uh, the first one is a standard fee, which you have to pay for any infringement complaint. That's 11,000 euros. 
Um, and then on top, you have a value-based fee that you have to pay, which accrues if you have a value in dispute, as it's called, um, which is above 500,000 euros. Value in dispute basically means um, how, how, how do you value um, for the plaintiff the objective of uh, being successful with this litigation? What's the impact going to be? So in the present case, let's just assume that a value in dispute of 2 million euros would be appropriate. So then looking at the actual numbers, we would have to pay the standard fee of 11,000 euros and then a value-based fee of um, 13,000 euros. So in total, we would be looking at uh, 24,000 euros. And that's actually quite modestly priced when you look at a just isolated German uh, litigation where you have a value in dispute also of, of 2 um, million euros. You would be looking at court fees in the amount of about 29.5 thousand euros. So it would, in fact, even be less. I know these, these numbers are probably very high for you. Uh, the high court in the UK is certainly much cheaper. But yeah, you, you have a system here which also needs to finance itself. So um, you have these, these court fees. Um, the good news is, of course, uh, it's a um, loser pay system. So if you, if we were to win the case, then in the end, um, these fees would have to be uh, reimbursed. Um, also, um, besides the court fees that were advanced and would be reimbursed, um, we would could be looking at reimbursement of our own attorney's fees. And uh, the new system has um, introduced a cap that is provided. So um, when we look at our case with an assumed value and dispute of 2 million euros, um, we would have a cap for the reimbursable attorney's fees of 200,000 euros. So I think you would, you would get a good chunk of your uh, litigation costs back if you are successful. Yeah, okay. And actually, I mean, you've done a comparison there with the German national fees versus the UPC, but that's just on the German piece. I mean, if you look at the UPC and the greater coverage it offers in terms of potential damages, you know, if we threw in a national action for, say, Netherlands, possibly France, you know, some other countries already those numbers increase quite quite quickly, quite significantly. So it's it's good value. Um, good, okay. Well, my feeling is the UPC is the right option for our client, uh, possibly with a parallel action in the UK too, just to just to offer that hedge we discussed. I'll give them a call and, and just go through things. Uh, have I missed anything? Do you agree? I mean, it's quite a big deal to recommend this, isn't it? Given we don't know anything about it yet. <laughs> How could I disagree? You have to start at some point with this new system. And again, it provides many upsides. So that's uh, yeah, definitely a good good time to use it now in the beginning when you can still shape case law. I think the, the biggest and central question for any client would be the central uh, revocation of the patent in this action. And if a client is minded to take that risk, but I understand from what you've been, um, explained before, that there are some fallback positions. And of course, as you say, you can always start a um, British action um, before the high court, which is also an important um, market in Europe. Yeah, so I guess we should recommend the UPC. Yeah, good. Yeah, I did wonder about that central revocation. You know, can they afford to lose the patent? And bottom line, the client is fiercely opposed to the competitor. They, they once worked together and fell out. They don't want to negotiate they really need to sort of stop these infringements so this is the way we go um just one other thing i i know like any client they'll they'll want to know why we eip are the right firm for the job especially given that upc is so new i was going to explain 
that we've got a well-established team of European patent prosecutors, amazing German litigators like you, Christoph, and UK litigators. We've all been working together for over 10 years or so with a track record of success and wins. So, you know, UPC is our sweet spot. I'm, I'm not sure I can recommend any other law firms, of course, but genuinely, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, think, I think we are the right firm for the job. Certainly. I, I couldn't agree more and uh, I couldn't say it any better. Um, it definitely sounds like a plan. I'm, I'm sure the client's going to have uh, one or two questions when you recommend it and I'm certainly available. We should have a follow-up call with him. Well, there we go. A worked example of whether or not to recommend the UPC. And as you can see, it really does depend on the facts, the nature of the client, their appetite for risk and the options available to hedge the risks as well. So hopefully that was helpful and illuminating. EIP Talks will be back with another episode soon. And to make sure you don't miss an edition, you can subscribe to EIP Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud. And for more patent updates, you can follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter by searching EIP. Thank you for listening. <laughs>